This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is Jack Lully, Professor, Chair of the Journalism and Communication Department, and Founding Director of the Global Studies and Globalization and Social Change Initiative at Lehigh University. His research focuses on globalization in media, international communication, international news reporting, cultural and critical studies of news, online journalism, and teaching with technology. Jack has been a member of the Lehigh University community since 1990. During his time there, he has received four Lehigh Teaching Awards, the Donald B. and Dorothy L. Stabler Foundation Award for Excellence in Teaching, the Lehigh University Award for Distinguished Teaching, the Faculty Scholar Award from the Phi Beta Delta Honor Society for International Scholars, and the Deming Lewis Faculty Award. He is also the award-winning author of three books, Daily News, Eternal Stories, The Mythological Role of Journalism, Globalization in Media, Global Village of Babel, and Understanding Media and Culture. He's a three-time winner of the Association for Education and Journalism and Mass Communications James E. Murphy Award for Research. Jack has authored more than 50 scholarly articles and book chapters, contributes to numerous newspapers and periodicals, and previously served as a commentator on NPR, the BBC, and other key media outlets. He's also a former writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer. He came to Lehigh three years after receiving his Ph.D. from the University of Georgia in 1987. Jack, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Good. Well, tell us about the formative experiences you had that stirred an awareness of your place in the world, your quote-unquote global consciousness. Were there times in your childhood that clued you into your role in the bigger picture? Uh, I don't think really in my childhood as much as in my teenage years. Um, when I first got to college, uh, I had a, the mistake of reading Jack Kerouac's On the Road, which is probably, <laughs> a, probably a very common thing for, yeah. for people from my generation. I, I was in school during the 70s, and uh, it, it just had one of those remarkable effects. Uh, so here I was sort of living this standard suburban life. I grew up on Long Island. Uh, I was halfway through the... Uh, my education at the State University in New York at Binghamton, uh, and I dropped out, <laughs> and it was so unlike me to do that. I, uh, you know, I did exactly what Kerouac did. I found one of those drive-away cars in Manhattan and drove it across country to San Francisco, and uh, just you know tried to experience as much of that as I could. And I think that was a really important move, even though I came back and finished my education, but it, it showed me that it's okay to take chances, it's okay to sort of break out of the mold every now and then. So certainly that was the, the first thing I did that sort of wrenched me out of the, the, the normal lockstep that one goes through in, uh, in suburban life. And then when I was finished with school. Uh, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I had a major in sociology and psychology. I thought perhaps I wanted to work with people, but I was just still enormously restless and uh, would just work for a little while. I, would, I could be a bartender and a truck driver, save my money, and then travel. You know, I traveled back to San Francisco. I traveled in Europe. I took a train across Mexico. Uh, 
you know, those were those were really interesting and important years for me. They were probably between like, 22 and 25, 26. Um, and it really opened my eyes up to a whole other world. And that surely would have stirred your global consciousness, wouldn't it? Yeah, it did. In fact, I probably before that time, I didn't even have a global consciousness. Um, but when you finally step out and get into the world, uh, you realize how much there is that you have to learn. Um, the similarities and the differences among cultures and people—it uh, was—it was really a, an eye-opener for me, uh, and something that, of course, I've tried to stress with my own uh, students and with, with my own children is to get them abroad and and make that part of their education. Because when you are abroad, it is 24/7 learning. You're you're just learning all the time. And I tried to apply the same thing when I eventually went back to school and went uh, got a master's degree in journalism at Temple University in Philadelphia uh, and started working for the Philadelphia Inquirer, as you noted. Yeah. And uh, I tried to make sure that I was covering stories and people that, that spoke to the world. And these, of course, you know, actually being there are not experiences that you can uh, really pick up from the New York Times or online. You really have to be there. Yeah, you do. You do. You can, uh, you know, the idea of reading about the world in a book, um, it's just not going to capture it. Right. And do you, did you pick up another language along the way? You know, I didn't. And it was one of the my great regrets as I struggle to master Italian every day now. <laughs> um, because uh, it wasn't a part of my education um, in high school, college. Uh, and now when I see students... Uh, you know, who have three or four languages because they spoke it at an early age, I realize how wise that is to be teaching uh, young people languages because uh, our old brains, it's hard to get the languages to stick now. Mm -hmm. And does Lehigh University offer and actually stress that as a key part of education? Well, you know, it's interesting. They, they don't require the students to, to have a foreign language. Uh, and one of the majors uh, that I directed here, Global Studies, uh, we put that in as a requirement of the major, thinking that it was probably going to limit the major's size you know, because students, we thought, were going to shy away from foreign language study. Uh, and the opposite happened. You know, it was one of the fastest growing majors in the college. That's actually uh, quite good to hear, and it gives me optimism. Yeah, yeah. this generation, I think, they, they, they're more global than previous generations. I think some of it's just because of new media. You know, they see and they hear things uh, around the world instantaneously now, uh, and I think they have a little better understanding of some previous generations of, of the world itself. Sure. And you, you mentioned going back to school. So what avenues did you pursue as an undergraduate and a PhD candidate? And how did your interest to pursue a career in academia come about? Yeah, so as I said, the sociology, psychology degree as an undergraduate was really perhaps a attempt just to, because I, I knew I liked working with people and I enjoyed being with them. Um, I perhaps had some thoughts of being a, a social worker. Uh, eventually did work as a daycare teacher for a little while, uh, but I was always writing and I didn't know that I would eventually, you know, start doing that as a living, but uh, by the time I graduated with the journalism major, I was. I was making my living as a, as a writer in Philadelphia. Uh, but that taste of graduate school was enough for me to be thinking about larger issues and um, 
that's sometimes not the best way to be a journalist if you're sitting there thinking, you know, why why is this a story or why am I writing it this way? Um, you know, that kind of slows the process down. Uh, and so eventually I uh, decided to go back to school and and, uh, and go into academe. And uh, the University of Georgia had just started their PhD program. And so I thought that one might be a good place to for me to go since I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. I had some strange ideas of what I wanted to study and I figured a new program might be more amenable to that and and so when you went to the university of georgia for your doctorate you didn't know at that time that you would be uh exploring a career in academia and teaching uh, i wasn't really sure it was really just the next step it was mm-hmm. going to be my my insights i was trying to pursue my insights into news um because what i was doing while i was working as a reporter was reading uh short stories and fairy tales and freud and jung and i was drawing these connections between the stories that we were writing every day in the news and these stories that we've been telling ourselves forever, you know, for as long as humans have been around, like, you know, uh, great floods and heroes and victims and evil ones. Uh, and that's what I wanted to pursue in graduate school was to look at the links between our storytelling over the years. Uh, and the University of Georgia actually turned out to be a very amenable place to that. I'm, I was a little surprised that uh, they were able to uh, accommodate me. In fact, they, when I was going to be down there, uh, they were t- telling me that there was going to be a, a professor, you know, visiting professor named Jim Carrey, who was going to be down there. And I was a reporter. I had no idea who this Jim Carrey was. And it turns out he was one of the foremost thinkers in American cultural studies and very conversant with the idea of studying news as narrative and news as story. So it was just lucky for me that, uh, that he was down there, but he was a, uh, certainly a, a big part of my education at Georgia. And at Georgia, was that the uh, uh, kind of the impetus for your quote-unquote global consciousness? I didn't, you know, I was certainly able to to start thinking about global affairs there be- through the, really through the prism of story. Um, it was the idea of looking at human storytelling across cultures and really across eras is what I was finding is that we do tell the same stories and we can be in different countries and we're still going to tell people's story of heroes and evil ones and you can go back in time and find people telling stories of the heroes and the evil ones um, and so I was able to start pursuing that there and my PhD dissertation was certainly global in that regard. I was looking, this was still when the Soviet Union was a uh, threat to the United States. Um, each of the countries had nuclear weapons and we were calling them the evil empire. Uh, it was, you know, in some ways it was scary times. And my uh, dissertation was looking at uh, U.S. news stories of the Soviet Union and comparing them to, to ancient myths. Um, so I had a little of the myth and the storytelling and certainly a, a a good dose of global in there as well. Were there particular professors at Georgia who you would consider to be mentors or, or those who profoundly molded not only who you are today, but, uh, but also your philosophy on education and learning? Yeah, yeah, very much so, and that that becomes a big part, I think, of someone's graduate school education is is to find mentors and people who can help them. Uh, so, as I mentioned. Uh, Jim Carrey was a was a large influence on me. He passed away a few years ago, but um, he was the dean at the uh, University of Illinois College of Communication 
for a long time. Uh, he was also at the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. Just a, a tremendous thinker. Uh, you can make connections for you that um, you never knew could exist. Um, I dissertation advisor was Al Hester and another really interesting man and so when I have my first appointment to go see him and I'm going to broach which I think is this sort of strange topic of you know studying news stories as myth uh, he jumps up from his desk and he runs over to his bookcase and he's got a whole slate of books on Carl Jung and uh, so <laughs> it, was a, it was a perfect connection for me and he yes. also did international communication as well and then uh, a visitor who was a student of Jim Carrey's uh, came to Georgia, a um, man named John Pauley, and uh, he was another large influence on me. He was working at that time out of the University of Tulsa, and uh, that was my first job after after I got the PhD. I wanted to go out there and study and work with him a little more, so I, I took a job uh, out in, the, uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma at the University of Tulsa. And as you were trying to find your place, uh, literally, what drew you to journalism? I, I think it was mostly writing that first got me into it. You know, I had always been writing, and some of that was short stories and poems and essays. Um, but then I took a particular interest, in to, which is Exodus Day, of you know, writing about current events, things that matter, what's going on in the world these days. And uh, so obviously journalism was a, was a good place for me to be. Uh, and I really appreciate good journalism with its emphasis on storytelling. You know, the, I think the best journalism can can be held up with our best novels and literature. Mm -hmm. And how did journalism at the time your interest was first peaked compare to journalism today? Uh, well, you know, it's one of the most interesting times I think to be in journalism right now, and, and certainly the the biggest change is technological. And uh, that actually has an, any number of implications. It's, you know, it's not just how we write the stories using different technology these days. It's how people are getting the stories, how they're talking about the stories. Uh, it's also had huge impacts uh, economically uh, on newspapers in particular. Uh, so it's a really interesting time to be in journalism research and studying the changes in journalism, you know, both in America and abroad. And primarily those changes have been caused by technology. And all of that would seem to make you an ideal professor. So what's your approach to teaching based on? Uh, I'm lucky at Lehigh. It's a, uh, you know, we have about 4,200 students total at the university, uh, about 100 majors within journalism, which means we graduate about, say, 20 to 25 each May. Uh, I get to know them all by first name, and they get to know me well. And so it's a real one-on-one -on -one relationship with many of the students. Uh, you know, I got here, this was only my second job after the University of Tulsa. Uh, I thought for sure I'd end up in, you know, in New York somewhere. Um, and, you know, Bethlehem's just about an hour and a half away from, from New York. And this was such a pleasant place to live and a pleasant place to work uh, that I ended up staying. And, and really the reason is the gratification that comes from being able to work individually with students. And uh, that's such an important part of writing and storytelling. You know, it's pretty hard to give a lecture on writing to 50 or 60 students and, and have them become good writers. You know, you work alongside people and, and can help them with their writing 
exciting. So that's that's been really the most gratifying part for me. Yeah, and you need the interactive aspect as well. Oh, you certainly do. You certainly do. Well, tell us about your role as the founding director of the Global Studies and Globalization and Social Change Initiative. Yeah, that was a really interesting development here at Lehigh. I'd I'd gotten here in 1990. Um, You know, as I said, the department and the the university itself is maybe moderate size. Uh, So certainly there wasn't going to be another professor in the journalism department who was doing international communication. We each had our specialties such as law and science and mine was international. So when I wanted to talk to uh, with other professors about international affairs and events, you know, it was very easy here at Lehigh because it's small and interdisciplinary uh, to find my colleagues in international relations, political science, anthropology, history who were interested in the same things I were. Uh, the university made some money available to, for different initiatives and uh, we getting together and thinking, well, what's, what's the one thing that's really shaped all of our fields and you know we came up with this notion of globalization you know whatever that means and it means a lot of different things to a lot of people uh, but certainly when I looked at journalism and when my friends in political science looked at politics and when other people looked at international relations this thing called globalization seemed to be changing all of our fields uh, and because Lehigh has a business college we wanted to make pretty sure what we meant by globalization and we weren't particularly and only interested in economics and sometimes that's the way globalization is understood uh, so we made the initiative the globalization and social change initiative uh, and it was just a really interesting time we brought uh, scholars to campus who were talking about the impact of globalization on human rights and on women's rights on history on journalism uh, but we're all teachers too and so we decided to take this globalization and social change initiative, which was at that point a faculty research initiative, uh, and develop an undergraduate component to it. And uh, we were thinking of an interdisciplinary major. Uh, I hadn't actually never heard of something called global studies before, but when we looked around, we realized that some universities, and not many, uh, had this major called global studies. Uh, The places we looked at were Yale, uh, Wisconsin-Madison, UCLA. Uh, They have to be pretty good universities uh, with strong departments because uh, to have an interdisciplinary initiative in global studies, you're going to need global people in each of those departments. And, you know, it's not not a given that you're going to have global people in English, for example, or journalism or sociology. but Lee, I had that, and so we, we drew from all those departments and, and created a global studies major. It's wonderful to, to hear how it came about. And you express in your message to the department, the Lehigh community and beyond, quote, almost every aspect of human existence has been touched in some way by the dynamic of globalization. It is the story of our time, perhaps the story of time itself, unquote. Can you expound on that last statement and how globalization has become such a crucial factor in society today? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I kept my most recent book was uh, Globalization in Media. And uh, in that book, we talked about, or I talk about when, when did globalization really begin? Uh, and there's a wonderful writer who used to head up the Center for uh, Globalization at Yale, Nayan Chanda. Uh, and his belief is globalization began 
when the first humans walked out of the African village and started to set foot around the world. And I've always been drawn to that concept, that that globalization has actually been with us from the beginning, that as we set out around the world, as we wonder about the world, uh, we set globalization into process. And it's really a process that continues to this day. And, you know, you could consider globalization to have happened centuries ago, not just when American Airlines started business. Well, that's <laughs> a, it's certainly the case. Yeah. Uh, well, the Global Studies and Globalization and Social Change Initiative is founded on the idea of being both multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary. So how's a curricular approach like this best suited for students in universities today? Uh, I, I think we're going to see more and more of this multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary approach because uh, that's where the, the big questions are and that's where the big answers are. Um, when I was in school and you know for hundreds of years, I think, uh, most knowledge and education in a university was captured in these silos called departments, you know, and there would be a department of economics and a department of political science and a department of journalism. Uh, and there wasn't a lot of cross-fertilization between the disciplines. But now when we think about things like, you know, climate change or terrorism or, you know, political turmoil, uh, every department has something to add to that. And it's, it's certainly the case that interdisciplinary studies can provide those answers. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. Turn to our Innovate Media interview with managing editor Robert Rim and Jack Lowell, professor and chair of the Journalism and Communications Department at Lehigh University, as well as the director of the Global Studies and the Globalization and Social Change Initiative. And are students receptive to multidisciplinary as well if they're kind of singularly focused on their degree? Yeah, you know, some, most of the time our convincing has to do with the parents. Really? <laughs> fact, on, my, on the Global Studies website, I used to put, okay, if you're going to declare the Global Studies major, here are the two questions you're going to have to answer from your parents. What is Global Studies? What do you do with it? And those are the, those are the questions <laughs> that the, uh, yeah. the students get asked all the time. And, and luckily, we had good answers to those things because like, once people get the idea that you know you're going to study not just the content of the classes you know globalization and culture globalization of politics globalization and history so you're going to get a really in-depth look at the content of those classes but the other thing that you're going to get that most education doesn't provide you with is how each of those disciplines study the world and study globalization and so rather than just learning how a journalist goes about work you're also going to learn how it does an historian work what kind of questions does a historian ask 
What does an anthropologist do? What is, how does an anthropologist study globalization? What does a political scientist do? Uh, and so the students not only then get the content of those classes, but they begin to understand the disciplines and how the disciplines work together. And sure enough, when they leave here, what's going to happen? They're going to go to workplaces where they're surrounded by people from different disciplines. And they, they have an advantage because they've already learned the basics of those disciplines. And what you described would seem to be a natural extension. Are you saying that that's not common in universities today? I think it's getting more and more common, but certainly that uh, old department silo structure is still with us. Um, it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to shake traditions where most people feel like that a good education is in depth knowledge of one discipline rather than knowledge that might be spread across different disciplines. Mm -hmm. And from the way you're describing it, it sounds like you've got the support of the Lehigh administration. Uh, certainly. Uh, they've, they've been very receptive to that. I, I think Lehigh, again, because of its size, uh, is particularly interdisciplinary in nature. You know, we're, we're small enough that we get to know one another. We know what work is going on in each of the departments. You know, at a big university, you may not even know what's going on in other parts of your own department. Um, but here I knew the work that other people were doing. It made it really easy to, to join together. Uh, and then as we found success, you know, through foundations and conferences and a really healthy major, I think that just sort of confirmed for the administration that, um, that majors like this were certainly very viable. Mm -hmm. And can larger institutions, universities, uh, adopt this model successfully? Oh, I, I'm certain that they can. Um, it, it'll take a little more work because, you know, it's, as I said, it's, it's hard at a big university to know what your colleagues in other departments, other colleges even, are doing. Uh, and so they're going to have to go a little bit out of their way to do that. I know that certain universities, um, they, they have these things called clusters that, that try to do this. And anything that gets at bringing professors from other departments together, uh, I think there's a lot of value to that. And what kind of students do you find being drawn in and most passionate about the Global Studies program? Is there yes. a typical profile? or? Yeah, I'll take it. No, it's, you can almost guess that they're going to be really, really bright. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. they're, they're pretty bright at Lehigh to begin with. You know, this is a tough school to get into. Uh, you know, it, it thinks of itself as a second-tier Ivy school, and it competes as much as it can against the Princetons and the Harvards and the Yales of the world. Uh, so when the students get here, they're 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 very well prepared anyway. But the students who get attracted to global studies, I, I found, were, were particularly bright. And there was a couple of reasons for that. One, they're not afraid of interdisciplinary work. You know, it's something out of the ordinary, and these kids are risk takers. They, they were willing to do that. Uh, we require intermediate foreign language skills. Uh, that's another thing that separates us from the other departments. And we also require study abroad. Uh, so that's a fairly intimidating list of things for uh, an undergraduate to consider. And so they're usually going to be really bright, risk-taking students, and that's what we found. And how do these students' experiences through classes, through internships, through discussions, uh, change their ideas about the relationship between the many disparate factors that compose our larger global community? Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting to watch that take place because remember when they first get here, you know, they're just a, a few months removed from high school. Uh, and so then for four years, they go through this really substantial change. Um, 
many of them have no interest at all in studying globalization, you know, and I have to kind of deal with that in the intro class and say, okay, well, we're going to study this thing, and, you know, it's a distasteful word to begin with, but we have to get our arms around it. Uh, and by the time that class is done, they certainly have an understanding how globalization is shaping the many fields they might be interested in. They, they want to go into health, some of them, they want to go into politics, they want to go into business. Um, you know, there's no field that globalization hasn't touched. Uh, so they take the classwork um, through their foreign language training. They learn a little bit more about culture. And then, of course, when they study abroad, most of them do so in their junior year. They're able to really get the most out of that experience because they've been prepared to look at and observe global change. And just as an aside, what are the languages that Lehigh University uh, uh, offers? Uh, we've got a pretty good array right now uh -huh. for a small university. Uh, you know, of course, the traditional... Uh, French and Spanish, and uh, we've we've actually started developing Arabic and Chinese and Japanese, and uh, sure enough, the the students have gravitated to all of them. Terrific to hear. Do you offer Russian there at Lehigh? We do offer Russian, yes. Uh -huh. Wonderful to hear. Well, uh, specifically, talk to us about your findings and beliefs about globalization, and what are the differences between globalism and globalization? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. Um, globalism, in my mind, and of course these, these words get, get used in a lot of different instances, um, is I think a sort of precursor to globalization. You know, for me, globalism is the idea of conceiving of the world, um, that we're able to think about people and nations beyond our own borders. Uh, and that's, you know, that wasn't something that was common to humankind for hundreds of years. You know, you, you were born in a village, you grew up in that village, you died in that village. Maybe you heard tales from, you know, other stranger places. But the idea now of being able to conceive of the world, um, something that, that I used in the subtitle of my book uh, as a global village, I think that's sort of a precursor to globalization which then becomes the process by which we start to act on globalism. Uh, it's an interesting thing. Again, I wrote about it in the book because I'm interested in words. And um, there's actually study of what they called ization words. You know, yeah. Globalization you know, ends in ization. And ization is interesting because it could be one of two things. It could be a process that's completed, you know, the globalization of the world, or it could be a process that's still underway. And uh, I think globalization has it both ways. Sure. And uh, it would seem, on the surface at least, to be just a completely positive development. So from your perspective, are there, in fact, negative consequences of globalization? Well, yeah, that, the <laughs> I think the, uh, the subtitle of my book makes it pretty plain. You know? yeah. So it's called Globalization in Media, Global Village of Babel. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, you know, that old biblical story of Babel and how humankind was divided uh, as they, uh, the, the Lord dispersed them around the world and made them speak in other languages. Um, globalization has the potential to be a great thing for, for humankind. Uh, but right now, I think we find in a lot of different areas that, that globalization has been abused and that there are human actors who are using globalization for their own benefit, whether it be in the areas of economics or politics or culture, uh, and that plenty of people are being disadvantaged by globalization. Can you give us a few specifics? 
Uh, well, even in my own field. So I, I deal a lot in the book, obviously, with media. Uh, and so in some ways we think, oh, oh, you know, the media has never been, you know, it's never been a more democratic and uh, wonderful time to be in media. Everybody can communicate with one another. People can post things to Facebook. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a whole wealth of media potential now. But then when we look, carefully we realize that most of the world's media is owned by a handful of actors corporate actors uh you know such as disney and viacom uh and you know movies and television stations and radio stations and book publishing are being controlled by uh, uh what we would call an oligopoly uh, and so in the media world, what looks to be you know, a, a global and diverse universe actually is not one. Uh, and then in economics, of course, um, you know, the, the talks that were going on in this country right now and really around the world about inequality, that you know, globalization certainly has helped uh, you know, millions of people rise out of poverty, but it's also made some really stark inequalities within nations and then also between nations. And obviously, that story has a lot to go before it's fully played out. Oh, it certainly does. And I'm, you know, I'm an optimistic person. I try to be <laughs> as hopeful as I can, so that uh, you know, I, I do think globalization has the potential to uh, to liberate us, uh, but we're not there yet. Yeah, and just to, to take one example in in the economic field, uh, what's going on in Greece right now about perhaps separating from the European Union and and maybe creating all kinds of consequences and problems for the euro where an initially good idea uh, just plays up the the stark differences in societies and countries yeah yeah and and how complicated it is it points to that need for interdisciplinary work because you know think of how many issues are really being talked about there economic issues political issues cultural issues historical issues uh you know there's a whole wealth of things that are getting talked about below the surface uh, even if we're only talking about the euro all that other history is there sure which which uh, get clearly into the sociological aspects so your book daily news eternal stories the mythological role of journalism has been called a landmark book in the sociology of news so what does the book explore and provoke yeah it, as i was mentioning earlier the the, the main impetus for that book was to look at the stories that we tell ourselves in the news, even to this day, and realize that the same stories that people have told themselves for hundreds of years. Uh, the names change, the dates change, the places change, but there are some really dramatic and powerful themes that humans have always used in their storytelling. And uh, I, I use about four or five in the book in particular, the, the, such as the hero. You know, that's a, that's a story that gets used in every culture. You know, Joseph Campbell had a, his book called, I believe, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, you know, that you could look at every culture and find the hero story you know a lot of times we define ourselves not by what we are but what we are not and you could see that story certainly today you know a really powerful in some way very divisive story of, of who we are and who we are not um, and then natural disaster stories and flood stories um, another uh, myth that seems to be within almost every culture is, is a great flood the, the wiping out of uh, of people and the rebirth that follows that and you know in, in Christian traditions that's Noah in the flood but they find that that myth in many cultures 
Sure. And you mentioned Globalization in Media, Global Village of Babel, your book, uh, which argues for the central role of media in the historical process of globalization. You also mentioned history a number of times. Can you tell us more about the ideas behind this book? Yeah, the when I mentioned uh, Nyan Chanda before, um, there's actually three different time periods that people sort of look to if they're trying to define globalization. As soon as you try to define globalization, the next thing people want to know is when did it begin? Uh, and there's an interesting theory that says that globalization really began in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, and there's a writer who makes that that argument, Arjun Apadurai. Uh, and he says that there were precursors to the globalization, but in the 80s and the 90s with the advent of media that connected the world, you know, he's thinking particularly of television uh, and global transportation, which allowed, you know, migration to, to, to occur on a easy and regular basis, that that's really when, when globalization under, got underway. And then there's a whole other school of thought that has globalization beginning, and it's a pretty easy marker uh, with the founding of America and the, the global uh, passages that ships undertook so that we could really think of the world as a world. And then there's Chanda's long view that says, you know, globalization really began when we first walked out of Africa. Now, of course, there's no right or wrong to those things, but there are, each one of them has some interesting ways to be thinking about globalization. Mm -hmm. And the media at the time, did that have more of an international or a local reach? Uh, one of the arguments my book makes is that, you know, globalization could only take place with media. You know, oftentimes globalization gets... Um, tossed together with different themes so that you know, you can look at different things like globalization and terrorism, globalization and human rights, uh, globalization and the economy. For me, the media actually played even a larger role than something like that, that media actually made globalization possible so that even when in our early times when uh, people were setting out, you know, they they would leave markers to each other in, in the cave paintings and say, okay, well, here are some things to look out for, and here are some of the game that you may be able to hunt here. Uh, the great empires, the Silk Road where trade and travel happened. Uh, media were part of all those things, and, and certainly to our time. Hmm. And from Babel to the present day, uh, the Charlie Hebdo attacks must have been a prime subject for your classroom discussions. What kind of dialogue did they spark, and, and, and what do you think uh, students took away from that? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, of course, I wear two hats here at Lehigh, you know, global studies and journalism, and each one of those departments and its students uh, found much to talk about in those attacks, obviously. So from, from journalism, you know, the students have been imbued with the idea of free speech and that, you know, sometimes you're going to write and portray and say things that are going to make other people angry, and that's okay, you know, and that's what the First Amendment is designed to protect. Uh, on the global studies side, uh, there was more of an interest, not that the First Amendment piece of it, or at least freedom of speech, uh, wasn't also central to the discussion, but there was also ways of looking at it, perhaps more from uh, the Islamic point of view, of saying, okay, well, we know we have the, uh, the ability to say these things, and we have the freedom to say these things, but do we have to? And, and what does that mean? And, and why uh, single out a particular group? And, and certainly uh, Muslims felt singled out. And that wasn't an attempt to explain away the attacks, but just to provide context. Uh, and so they really made some, some very interesting discussions and some, some uncomfortable discussions. 
And why is so society so quick to ascribe a singular action to an entire people or religion or group or the, you know, why does that happen? Yeah, if we could answer that question, we would probably be president or something. <laughs> yes. But, you know, it is a feature that you see throughout humankind. I, I think some ways, uh, you know, like, I, I like reading Freud, you know, and one of the things Freud tells us, you know, the world's a hard place and the world's a very complicated place. And, you know, we have to, to do things to find our way in it, to find our role in it, uh, and simplifying things and dramatizing things and, you know, singling people out uh, to explain what's going on. Uh, I think those are all mechanisms people use to, to get by in the world. And our students today... Um, actually less inclined to make those generalizations and broad brush uh, discriminations? I, I'm hoping so. I, I don't think it's any coincidence that, uh, you know, this generation is seeing, uh, you know, gay rights become more uh, acceptable, um, interracial romances on the campus. You know, it's, those, those, those are things that were not common when I was growing up. So it's really just one or two generations removed uh, I think they've lived through a lot and they've seen a lot, um, and they're you know within a few short years they're going to be the generation taking over. Sure, and they'll be the next Supreme Court justice. Well, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And what lessons about globalization do you feel would be most valuable for the average American to incorporate into his or her life today? Well, I think the the biggest thing to take away with globalization is it has been a really positive factor. You know, it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about. There's another book called The Bottom Billion that, that talks about that it wasn't too long ago where there were 5 billion people in poverty and 1 billion people above the, uh, above the poverty line. And that ratio reversed itself where there are now 5 billion people above the poverty line and a billion people below it. Uh, so that's good news. Globalization is, has helped a lot of people. Um, but the message of the bottom billion is there's still a billion people who have yet to be uh, affected by this. And uh, we, we can't go on thinking that the world is a fair and equitable place for everyone because there's still much more work to be done. Yeah, and surely a lot more to be explored. Well, the best way for our listeners to reach Jack and to find out more about his work is through Jack Lully, which is J-A-C-K-L-U-L-E.com. Click on the webpage links above this podcast for further details. And Jack, great to have you with us today. Well, thank you very much. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.